This recording is intended to be used as an educational resource for healthcare providers. It is in no way a substitute for the independent decision making and judgment of a qualified healthcare professional. It should not be used to make a diagnosis or to overrule the advice of a qualified healthcare provider, nor should it be used to provide advice for emergency medical treatment. Sepsis in the Hematopoietic Stem Cell Transplant Patient by Dr. Leslie Lehman. My name is Dr. Leslie Lehman, and I'm the director of the Pediatric Stem Cell Transplant Program at Boston Children's Hospital Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. And today we are going to talk about the evaluation of a bone marrow transplant patient who may be developing sepsis. This is a very fragile population who have received high-dose chemotherapy uh, in, the, in the setting of their stem cell transplant and they can change very, very quickly. So it is very important to always have the idea of uh, infection and sepsis in the back of your mind when you're called to evaluate these patients. You're the overnight physician on the BMT unit, and the nurse calls you to evaluate a four-year-old boy with acute lymphoblastic leukemia, who is now day plus five from a matched unrelated donor bone marrow transplant. He continues to be highly febrile, tachycardic, and now has a blood pressure that is slightly lower than the normal range for his age. The nurse reports he is also slightly difficult to arouse, but will wake up and cry out for his mother. As the overnight physician, you quickly review the patient's chart and on evaluation of his intake output over the last 24 hours, you notice the patient has decreased urine output. You also notice the patient has received frequent packed red blood cell and platelet transfusions over the last 24 hours for ongoing bleeding noted mostly from his mouth. So when the nurse calls, the first thing they usually say is that the patient has a fever and the fever can either be ongoing at that moment or the patient could have had a recent fever over the past several days. Fevers are very common in our, in our population and usually don't prompt a call. And so there's almost always something in addition to the fever that raised the level of concern for the nurse. And this can either be tachycardia or an elevated heart rate, a blood pressure that is lower than the patient's norm, or poor perfusion. And when we say blood pressure lower than the patient's norm, it's important to know the normal blood pressure for age for a pediatric patient population, and also what blood pressure that patient usually has. And any change either from the stated norms for that age or for that patient should prompt evaluation uh, and, and a careful thought process. Sometimes, however, the nurse calls because there's a fever, and there's some less common findings that still can be uh, heralding sepsis. And some of those can be a change in mental status, that the patient seems out of it or is harder to arouse, decreased urine output uh, that has been going on for the past several hours or even day, and bleeding that seems hard to control. In bone marrow transplant, patients almost always have low platelet counts because of the chemotherapy that they got in preparation for transplant, and there will be some bleeding, but if there is bleeding that does not stop, either with a platelet infusion or bleeding that um, seems out of proportion to the degree of the platelet count, then that also can be a sign of sepsis as well. The problem in the evaluation of sepsis in these very complicated patients is that every single symptom or sign that the patient presents with has a broad differential diagnosis, and so there can be lots of other explanations rather than sepsis, and part of your job would be to go through each of the findings 
run the differential diagnosis in your mind and then either rule out by history or by evaluation that these aren't the reasons and that sepsis is now coming near the top of your list. We will run through each of these symptoms and signs and give the kinds of things on the differential diagnosis in a bone marrow transplant patient. So tachycardia. Tachycardia often in transplant can be caused by pain, and that's either pain from mucositis because of the high-dose chemotherapy that they received, uh, pain from prior central line insertion, pain, abdominal pain, and that can cause an elevated heart rate. Another common cause of a tachycardia is dehydration. So if the patient is intravascularly not replete, that absolutely can lead to tachycardia. Um, and then if the patient is anemic, does not have enough red cells, then that can be a cause of tachycardia as well. So as you're looking at the tachycardia, you would also want to be thinking about which of these other factors can contribute. Some of these can be elucidated by, by history from the nurse or history from the patient, and some can be elucidated on physical exam, looking to see if there's dehydration, and some can be elucidated by looking at the lab work to see, for example, if the patient is anemic. Low blood pressure also is always something of concern, but can be due to things other than sepsis. Dehydration, in addition to causing tachycardia, can also cause low blood pressure. It's a fairly late stage of dehydration that causes low blood pressure, so that you should be quite sure that the patient really is dehydrated before you ascribe it to that. Another less common but very serious thing is cardiac dysfunction. Some of the chemotherapy agents that we give uh, or prior chemotherapy the patient has received can cause acute uh, changes in cardiac uh, pumping ability, and that can also lead to low blood pressure. Also, some medications that we use to control high blood pressure, such as clonidine uh, patch being common or, or IV uh, antihypertensives, can uh, lead to low blood pressure. So those, again, can be taken from the history and from physical exam. Poor perfusion would be a very concerning sign and is almost never the result of something trivial. And the two main things that would need to be ruled out would be cardiac dysfunction, leading to poor pumping and thus poor perfusion, and very profound dehydration. Somebody who is 5% or 10% dehydrated should not have poor perfusion. And so if that exists, it needs to be taken very seriously. For the less common manifestations of sepsis, also have, those also have a, a, a differential diagnosis associated with them. So a change in mental status. That can be a medication effect. Some of the immunosuppressives, such as cyclosporin, can cause uh, changes in mental status, but also pain medications and anti-nausea medications, such as Ativan, can also make uh, changes in a patient's mental status. We, there's a specific entity in bone marrow transplant called hypertensive encephalopathy, which is most usually related to cyclosporin exposure, and that can make people uh, have altered mental status all the way to coma. Infections can also lead to changes in mental status. It either could be uh, a meningitis, which is an infection in the, in the spinal fluid, uh, or an encephalitis, which can be a viral infection that affects the whole brain, uh, can lead to changes in mental status as well and would require specific interventions to diagnose. Decreased urine output can be from dehydration. It can be from obstruction. Uh, BK virus can cause a hemorrhagic cystitis in the transplant population, and that can be associated with clots in the bladder that can lead to an obstructive problem so that there's not urine output. Uh, in addition, uh, there can be medication effects such as narcotics, which make uh, it hard to actually void. And so all of those should be evaluated as you look at the urine output for a given patient. And finally, hard to control bleeding can be just a result of thrombocytopenia. 
Hematuria, as we talked about above, can be from a viral infection. And GI bleeding that is hard to control. It can be uh, caused by graft-versus-host disease when patients have received marrow from somebody other than, than themselves or an allogeneic transplant. It could be from severe mucositis or it can be a sign of a disseminated viral infection causing a colitis such as adenoviral infection, CMV infection, or Clostridium difficile colitis. So while all of those things are running through your head and the nurse has you on the phone, these are the questions that should be asked uh, immediately. So it may seem that they're in a reverse order, but what you want to sort out very quickly is whether this is a patient who is acutely decompensating and you need to bring in lots of backup, or whether this is a patient who has a worrisome trend and you can do a slightly more uh, thoughtful and not quite as quick evaluation. So you want to know the current vital signs, and if those vital signs are severe abnormal while you are figuring out all these other things you want to be calling for backup from the ICU as well as letting your attending physician know. You also want to know the trend of the vital signs over the past day. It would be more concerning if somebody had uh, usually had a normal heart rate and now all of a sudden was particularly tachycardic versus that they had been tachycardic within this range for the last three or four days. You also want to very quickly know the level of responsiveness because any change in mental status requires very urgent evaluation. And then as a background, if you don't already know it, you want to know some basic demographics. What type of transplant did they have? Did they have a transplant from themselves, an autotransplant, or a transplant from someone else, an allotransplant? What disease was this transplant done for? Was it done for leukemia where they um, may have had a lot of chemotherapy prior to transplant? Was it done for an immunodeficiency disease where you know that they're more prone to infection. You want to know what day they are post-transplant. Are they very early post-transplant where they have no neutrophil engraftment or are they now months after transplant and were admitted for another problem? And then what antibiotics are they on at this moment and when did they receive those drugs? Then I would very quickly go to the room to, to look at the patient and the quick check that you would do is, is the patient arousable and interactive? And again, we can't stress enough the fact if there is an altered mental status or a patient who does not seem arousable or alert, that is gonna require very urgent ICU backup because this patient could get much sicker very, very quickly. You want to make sure the patient is on a monitor so you can see the trends and the vital signs and know if the oxygen saturation is dipping or the heart rate is, is, is going higher or lower. You want oxygen available if needed, and the current sepsis guidelines recommend that patients be placed on oxygen in the setting of documented sepsis. You want to make sure that there's a code card available if needed, and you want to make sure that you have adequate intravenous access. Most of our patients will have central lines in place and a quick check with the nurse that it's functioning well, and then even with the central line, some patients will need additional access as well. You then want to look at the vital signs for yourself, compare the heart rate at the moment to the comparison of norm for age and baseline for the patient. Oxygen saturation, anything under 96% is not normal. Most of our patients will have oxygen saturations of 98% or greater, as will most people, and 96% uh, should at least make you think about something being wrong in the pulmonary system. And then as you evaluate a current blood pressure, you want to make sure that you have the appropriate cuff size, that the patient is able to sit still for a blood pressure being taken so you think you're getting an adequate reading. And then again, to compare to the norm for age and the baseline for the patient. While you're doing this, you can also be getting checking the history from the nurse and from the family in the room, including the underlying condition leading to the transplant. A very good question to ask our, for our patients is have they been on steroids recently? Because if they have been and they are 
febrile, or have early signs of sepsis, low blood pressure may be the result of adrenal insufficiency, and they may need a dose of steroid replacement in order to uh, regain a normal blood pressure. And then most importantly in transplant patients, what they have had in the past for infections often impacts what they are uh, fighting currently. So if they had recent bacteremias in the last week or two weeks, what were the sensitivities of the organisms that caused these bacteremias? Was the central line replaced between the bacteremia and, and the current time? And then in transplant, we also do weekly surveillance cultures of rectal swabs and throat swabs. And is this patient colonized with vanco-resistant enterococcus? Is the patient colonized with yeast or fungus? And are the current antibiotic and antifungal uh, antimicrobials that the patient is on covering for these surveillance culture results? You want to know the most recent assessment of organ function. What was the most recent creatinine? What was the most recent GFR? Has there been a recent echo to assess cardiac function? And then what is the current antimicrobial coverage? And do we have drug levels to know if the patient is on an appropriate dose? You then move quickly to the physical exam. Probably the most important thing to ask yourself is does the patient appear well? When you look at this patient, are you worried that they are severely ill? Is the patient arousable? Are they oriented? Are they interactive? Is the perfusion normal? Does the patient appear to have DIC? And this could be seen from oozing from a CVL site or any other dressing site. Are there new petechiae all over the body? Is there mucous membrane bleeding out of what you would expect for someone with mucositis? Then you will order a bunch of labs uh, to help you further evaluate the patient. There would be blood cultures obtained from all CVL lumens. We don't routinely obtain a blood culture from the periphery, uh, except in special circumstances. You would get a CBC, so you could see if the patient uh, needed transfusions of either blood or platelets. A DIC screen, as that can be a sign of sepsis if the DIC screen is abnormal. You want a stat set of electrolytes to make sure that the patient is in hypoglycemic and that the creatinine is within normal range. Liver function tests can be a sign of sepsis or poor perfusion. And then a urinalysis will help you assess hydration status with specific gravity and also look for bleeding in the urine as well as bleeding in other places. Imaging can be potentially useful if the patient has respiratory symptoms, either difficulty breathing or an oxygen saturation under 98%. A chest x-ray would be very useful. It can, uh, ideally, if the patient is stable, they would go down to radiology for an x-ray because it's a better quality, but if not, you can obtain a bedside x-ray. It can show airspace disease consistent with pneumonia. It can show pleural or pericardial effusions that could also be impacting oxygenation uh, and perfusion. Uh, there can be a pneumothorax uh, discovered, and uh, rarely there could be aberrant line placement that could be contributing to symptoms. We almost always want a, a current echo in the setting of sepsis, especially with blood pressure changes or poor perfusion, and the echocardiogram can be gotten stat at the bedside. It can look for left ventricular function as well as for the presence of a pericardial effusion. And then you may want to think about a bladder ultrasound if there's poor urine output to rule out obstruction from uh, usually from clot. While all this is going on, you should be planning your interventions. And the most important intervention for a patient that you are worried about is to let the ICU know that the patient may need to be transferred to the ICU. But while that is happening, you would start with a fluid bolus. 
The sepsis guidelines uh, that have been adopted by the hospital recommend 20 cc per kilogram of normal saline if there is hypotension or poor perfusion, and that this be repeated until their blood pressure is returned to normal and perfusion has returned to normal. There are certain caveats about this approach in, in our patient population, most significantly related to knowing that the cardiac function is, is okay and will tolerate these fluid boluses. If a patient either has a large pericardial effusion or has poor uh, left ventricular function, then lots of fluid boluses may cause uh, more damage than they cause benefit. Uh, but you would always start with the first fluid bolus to make sure that the patient is intravascularly replete. Then hopefully you would be able to, from your physical exam and from a chest x-ray and or echocardiogram, figure out whether the cardiac function is contributing to the picture that you see. Colloid with its uh, high uh, osmotic pressure intravascularly is also a very good fluid to give. In patients who are stable during transplant, we often let the hemoglobin be under 7 or the platelet count be around 10,000. But if a patient is ill or potentially septic, we would like the platelet count to be greater than 50,000 and the hemoglobin to be greater than 8 to maximize intravascular volume, improve blood pressure, and to maximize oxygen delivery. Pa these patients need broad-spectrum antibiotics given immediately. Um, even if they are on one antibiotic, uh, the, the uh, antibiotic coverage often needs to be broadened. You would want gram-positive and gram-negative coverage. You need to be very aware of the multidrug-resistant organisms that the patient may have had in the past, as well as the multidrug-resistant organisms that are currently a problem in the hospital. And in general, if a patient is ill, you would want to make sure that they were on gram-negative coverage that uh, minimized the chance of MDR resistance. If the DIC screen is abnormal or if a patient needs colloid, FFP is a good product to give. And then you should begin pressors if the blood pressure is not uh, returning to a normal range very quickly. In general, this is only done with support from the ICU and in consulta consultation with the bone marrow transplant attending. The hope is that this presentation will make you more comfortable with the evaluation and treatment of bone marrow transplant patients who may be developing sepsis. These patients are vulnerable, sepsis is very common in this population, and they can become very sick very quickly. Thus, when you receive a call asking you to evaluate a patient who may possibly be septic, it is important that you have a differential diagnosis for other causes that may be leading to signs and symptoms that overlap with sepsis, that you go see the patient quickly where you obtain a focused history and do a focused physical exam, that you obtain quickly appropriate labs and perhaps imaging studies, and that you intervene rapidly with fluid and broadening of antibiotic coverage while calling the ICU for further backup and letting the bone marrow transplant attending, attending uh, be aware of this patient. Thank you. This recording is a production of Open Pediatrics, a free and open access resource for pediatric clinicians worldwide. For more pediatric care materials or to join our global community, please visit our website at openpediatrics.org.